Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, October 11th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this program, eminent legal scholars Philip C. Bobbitt, Akhil Ridomar, and Benno Schmidt discuss the constitutional framework for impeachment and how it has been interpreted and enforced throughout history. Uh, regarding impeachment, the text of the Constitution is uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 5 states, the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment. Section 3, Clause 6 of the same article adds, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall uh, preside. And no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Uh, Article 2, Section 4 states, The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, Philip, let's start with um, what might be certainly one of the most fundamental questions we could ask about the process of impeachment and removal. Is it a political process or a legal process? I think it's a legal process, and I think that that's the point uh, we should insist on. It's not obvious. The, uh, <clears throat> the body that tries uh, an impeachment, the Senate, is a political body. The body that impeaches or indicts an officer is a political body. But the text you just read specifies that whatever the grounds for impeachment in the House, and those are legal in nature, they're specified, treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. Those are legal criteria. Whatever the indictment or the impeachment proceedings in the House, the Senate must try the case. Now, that's not a term we use in politics. That's a term we use in law. The Chief Justice uh, presides, as you read. That's not an occurrence we have in politics. He's a judge. He convenes and conducts judicial proceedings. Senators who uh, sit as a jury must take a special oath, and that oath specifies that they must try the case according to law. So I'd say that a lot of the talk I hear uh, sometimes in in journals, uh, in the electronic media, that this is really not a legal proceeding, it's a political proceeding, is at best a half-truth and a very insidious one. 
because down that path lies impeachment that divide along party lines and that are resolved for party causes, which uh, undermines, I think, the rule of law. Akil, do you agree? Uh, Some further um, support for this idea. Of course, it's a mixed process, as as Philip told you. It it, it partakes of the political, in particular, Misdemeanors, I think, is not a technical criminal term. We could think of it as misbehavior of a certain sort. And, and violating a technical um, criminal law code definition of a, a crime might be neither necessary nor sufficient. But here's some additional words that are very much law words. And I'll give you one final point. Um, judge, this is also in Article 1, Section 3. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than um, blah, blah, blah. And again, it talks about the, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable to, uh, subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Um, so <clears throat> we're talking about punishment in cases of impeachment and judgment. Here's one other way to say it, because I, I think high crimes and misdemeanors is a bit of a term of art, and it's not an ordinary criminal law term, and that's why it's not given to an ordinary judge, an ordinary jury. Um, But here's one easy way to see how it it can't merely be enough that you politically don't like the fellow, whether it's a president um, or um, someone else who's impeachable. Let's just take the president, because this is about, in particular, presidential impeachments, this, this event. The Constitution says that in order to uh, to, um, overcome a presidential veto, you have to have two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate. Now, surely it can't be the case that the Constitution is set up so that you could detour around that um, by getting rid of the the vetoer himself just for a good-faith policy disagreement with a simple majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate. So it's a lower vote than just to overcome an ordinary veto, but that's because there's actually a higher standard. It's not mere policy disagreement. You can overcome a veto for, you know, he has his good faith view, you have a different view. Andrew Johnson, who was the first president really in the impeachment crosshairs in a serious way, um, uh, his um, veto, I think, was overcome about 15 times. Um, uh, uh, and yet, it was only at the end of the process that he eventually was I- impeached and ultimately acquitted, um, even though they were overturning his vetoes again and again and again. Mere good faith vetoes can't be a high crime misdemeanor, and that's in the structure of the Constitution as well as the text. We are all, we ended, we ended up at the same law school, the three of us, and we are all students of the great Charles Black, who actually, I think, you know, uh, would want us to focus not just on text, the structure of the Constitution. Since you mentioned uh, Andrew Johnson, I should just uh, mention that he was impeached for trying to fire the Secretary of War, Stanton. And, and in, that, in doing that, he violated the Tenure of Office Act, which said that of certain positions, including the Secretary of War, uh, the, the person holding that office could not be removed by the president without the advice and consent of the Senate. Mm-hmm. That is itself plainly unconstitutional. The Tenure uh, of Office Act itself. The Tenure yes. of Office Act, because the president can't be an effective executive unless he can fire the people who work for him uh, in the cabinet. 
And Washington insisted on that really on day one. It's yes. called the decision of 1789. The, right. the first Congress agreed with him. Right, right. And it really can't be any other way if you're going to have a strong executive. Um, the, 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 there is one very large consequence to the argument that Philip and, and Akeel, and which, with which I completely agree, that impeachment and conviction is a legal proceeding and not a purely political proceeding. The essence of a legal proceeding is that like cases have to be decided like. Mm. And so the grounds for impeachment uh, have to be, if you, if you impeach a president whom you don't like, who's not of your party, with whom you have serious disagreements, you have to be prepared to say that you would also impeach a president that you did like of your own party, who had, who had undertaken the same uh, set of actions regarded as, as uh, within the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors. We should just say quickly that the first two crimes laid out in the impeachment provision are treason and bribery are, uh, are actually quite simple in definition. There may be acutely complex evidentiary questions, particularly around bribery, but the Constitution defines treason very narrowly. And we know what bribery uh, is, uh, the element of quid pro quo for something valuable bestowed, uh, an official act. Um, So I take it then we would disagree with Gerald Ford when he was Speaker of the House and said of, of a potential impeachment of William O. Douglas that grounds for impeachment are whatever the House says they are on a particular day. I think that's uh, right. I think even uh, President Ford regretted having made uh, <laughs> right. that often quoted uh, remark. I think where people drift into that sort of uh, abyss uh, is over the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors. These are not crimes, as Professor Amar said, that you find in Title 18 of the Federal Criminal Code. But that doesn't mean they're really something you can simply concoct. What are the Char- one of Charles's arguments? Charles Black. Oh, sorry, one of Charles Black's uh, arguments is a loyally argument you would have heard in the courts of this country many times in the 19th century. It relies on a Latin phrase called "eustum generis," sorts of things that law students used to always uh, study. And it simply means things like that. So if I say, uh, I'd like you to go to the store for our party tonight, please get some whiskey and gin and get some wine and beer, and you come back with a Corvette, (laughs) I'll think you weren't really following my instructions. This is crucial for this potent (coughs) phrase. Treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So whatever they are, these high crimes, these crimes against the state, crimes that threaten the integrity, the vitality, and the stability of the state itself, must be like treason and bribery. And that doesn't mean they can be just whatever the hell you'd like them to be because you're so vexed at the incumbent. Right. There, the, one of the elements of that treason, bribery, and other high crimes is a violation of the public trust. That's right. Um, 
Now, Philip, do you think that uh, for impeachment and conviction and removal to be valid, there has to have been a crime committed, an actual crime? I don't think that. And one reason I don't think that, uh, as we're all here in New York City, is because Aaron Burr was indicted for murder, both in New York and in New Jersey, after his uh, notorious duel with Alexander Hamilton. He fled both jurisdictions. Uh, He was uh, in hiding for a brief period. But then he went back to Washington and continued on as vice president. And and more, he presided over the impeachment trial as president of the Senate um, of Justice Samuel Chase. For which he was widely praised. Leading one wag to say that in most countries, the murderer is arraigned before the judge. (laughs) But here in America, we have the judge being arraigned arraigned before the murderer. But you can see how we fell into this, into this error. Sometimes these, these myths, these mistakes feed on each other. If you think that high crimes and misdemeanors is just an open invitation to a political uh, trial, then you'll want to cabin that by saying, oh, but there must be some underlying crime. In fact, instead of drawing the, the circle tighter, you've really just uh, made a second error prompted by the first one. Right, right. Um, So a criminal act is, so for example, a president who announced that he he or she was going to Rome for a six-month holiday and would do no public business, that would not be a crime. That's right. But that would certainly be an impeachable offense. It's a violation of the public trust that any president has with the people, which is to do the work of the country and and not go to Rome for six months. And textually, you see demeanor, how one demeans oneself is how one behaves. So we could think of it as a certain kind of gross misbehavior of a certain sort, whether or not, strictly speaking, criminal in the ordinary sense, neither necessary nor sufficient. Um, It's it's slightly different than an ordinary uh, crime. I mean, one of the interesting questions about this, this, this matter of it, there has to be some element of violation of the public trust is what about a serious crime committed by a president before he or she was elected president? For example, tax evasion. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we have an example of it. Uh, just just the, other, the other morning, I picked up my New York Times and read that the president may have been guilty of evading almost $500 million of taxes. I mean, a huge amount. But that was a long time ago. Uh, Do you think a criminal act, if that were proven, of course it hasn't been, but if that were proven, do you think that would be a ground for impeachment? It happened 30 years ago. I don't think so. Hamilton says in number 65 of the Federalist that it must be a a political crime. That's not an ordinary crime, but that's also not just a political offense, a, a political crime. And I don't see uh, tax evasion as falling in that, in that category. And I also don't see that you can be impeached for something decades before you took office. Having said that, if a candidate for office 
were to engage in some kind of uh, conspiracy to pervert the course of an election, we wouldn't want the candidate to be the beneficiary of his or her wrong uh, so that the election process itself, though it was uh, perverted by someone not yet in office, I think could be a predicate for uh, for an impeachment. By the same token, if a president who was not part of this conspiracy uh, was the beneficiary of it through no wrongdoing of his own, who once in office tried to prevent the investigation of that conspiracy, I think that would be a predicate for it. And I veer off just a bit. I, let's take tax evasion. I do ag- agree that private tax evasion, long before one holds any public office, is one thing. Now, uh, evading one's taxes as president and using the IRS to avoid detection, that starts to look like an abuse of, of government power. Of well, that was sword. one, one um, of Nixon, the charges uh, against, against Nixon was that uh, in the Judiciary Committee in the House was that he had evaded $400,000 worth of taxes while he was president. And, and so that might be different. And they didn't go... And, they, and the House did not, did not go, did not, uh, right. go for that there, as, there as be- an impeachable offense. There before the grace of God go many of them, they may have thought. Um, so, um, which, which is a reminder, these are politicians judging other politicians, and you don't want to set the bar um, too high because... What goes around comes around, and your presidents of your party may have done the same thing. But here's why I do um, have a slightly different take. If treason, which is explicitly um, mentioned, were committed by a very young man or woman, um, uh, but, but, um, and then uh, much later that person becomes president, I think I would take the position that because treason, even committed by a private person, is the most obvious threat to the integrity of the state, um, I might take the position that that was impeachable. Now, here's one other thing. Did the, what did the voters know, you know, and when did they know about it? Have they ever cured uh, some deep crime in one's past by their um, uh, approving vote? And here we might treat presidents who do come before the citizenry differently, let's say, than, than judges or cabin officers who don't come before the citizenry in elections. Um, here's one hypothetical that Philip mentioned. There's actually a precedent on that because since we're talking about law, the, the, the things that the Senate has actually done the, uh, uh, when it's tried impeachments are indeed precedents of a certain sort. I testified before the House Judiciary Committee about a very corrupt judge. His name was Thomas Porteous. He's from New Orleans. And he did all sorts of corrupt things. He took all sorts of bribes as a state judge. He became a federal judge, and he also actually was acting in improper ways. But that was harder to prove. He, his defense was actually nothing that I did before I became an Article III judge um, can count. It's only my official misconduct. And I took the position, and the House agreed with me, you lied during your confirmation hearings. Um, and uh, you weren't a federal judge yet, but lying in order to get this job was surely actually I- impeachable, um, and not just uh, what happened um, after you, you um, uh, took your Article Three oath of office. And, and the House did agree with me Well, this, this raises a cu- couple of rather naughty questions. Uh, 
First, on the issue of treason. By that reasoning, none of the officers and men of the Confederate Army could have served as officers of the United States. Men like General Longstreet, who became a Republican, was very much in favor of Reconstruction, would have been vulnerable to impeachment. That, that seems to me uh, that it proves too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of the example of Porteus, I think we agree, uh, because we've discussed this before, <laughs> that the standards for impeaching a judge are different. This is very important, this point. So let's actually talk about it just a bit. Yes. Well, I don't want to usurp the well, no, I, I, uh, let, Let's talk about whether acts of, that are impeachable may vary yes. given the office yes. of the person who this has is, committed the act so that what might not be impeachable for a president uh, might well be impeachable for a federal judge, for example. I think that's right. And I, I think there's something particularly galling about asking someone to be tried and sentenced by a judge who is known to, be, uh, to have lied in a tribunal. <laughs> it just undermines uh, his or her authority it makes the system seem as though it's, it's been fouled before the trial ever started. Whereas uh, uh, a president, a vice president, uh, a Supreme Court justice, who, uh, like Hugo Black, may have, uh, one of our greatest justices, uh, may have misled the Senate when he denied that he'd been a member of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, and then went on the court. Uh, I think this is a, is a different issue. The president's in one box. He's a politician. He's not a judge. A Supreme Court justice is in a different box. And a trial judge, someone who's actually handing out sentences and deciding the facts of crimes, civil uh, cases, I think is in a different box. The text is the same, but the structures are all different. So another way of saying just that point, and, and, and Charles Black's book, which in its newest edition is uh, basically co there's a whole new section uh, by Professor Bobbitt, and I commend this book to you. Yeah, it's, it's very, yeah, it, I, it, 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 very it's, important book, especially it, it, with Philip's edition. It, it's very slender, um, very easy to read, um, and... It's about presidential impeachment, and all the precedents that are discussed are about presidential impeachments. And just here's one way, when we say structure, here's an example of basically what we mean. When the Senate of the United States, as an impeachment court, votes to convict, let's say, a cabinet officer or a judge, they're voting to undo a commission that they themselves basically participated in. They made that person, by their advice and consent, the Senate did, um, a cabinet officer, a judge. That's one thing, to undo their own... Thomas Porteous became a federal judge because the Senate actually made him a federal judge, and he lied to them in that process. That's one thing, to undo um, an action that you yourself helped make. Oh, it's a very different thing for the Senate of the United States to undo a national election. Yes, you know, right. That's, that's a stru- I just made a structural argument. It's not a textual argument. As Philip told you, as, as Benno told you, the text reads the same. Treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It doesn't distinguish between presidents, vice president, cabinet officers, justices, judges. But the structures are very different. Very different. Uh, let's... 
Let's turn now, uh, before we get to the question period, to some factual situations that have been uh, rattling around a little in the news of late. Um, Philip, do you think electronic hacking into the emails of the Democratic National uh, Committee in 2016, before the last presidential election, is that comparable to the break-in at Watergate, uh, where the Republican, where the Republican, the plumber's crew planted microphones uh, at the in the offices of the Democratic National Committee? Yes, I think it's only comparable. I think it's virtually identical. The methods of the thieves are different, uh, but the ingenuity of burglars is always a cutting-edge technology. <laughs> <coughs> Yes, I think it's quite, it's very much the same. So if, if it could be shown that a president authorized or knew about in advance and, and didn't stop uh, such, a, such a, a hacking um, or encouraged it, colluded in it, that would be an impeachable offense in your view. I think that's right. I think the Nixon case does provide a precedent. Uh, I think it's important that we realize that doctrine and precedent are not confined to courts that the actions of the Senate and the House and impeachment, the actions of presidents and foreign policy and appointments, all provide constitutional precedents. But I'd say, I'd answer a question that, that you didn't ask. I'd say, of course you're right that a president who contrived to have the headquarters of the opposing party uh, burgled and their, their private documents purloined and published or used in some uh, intimidating way would be subject to impeachment. But I would also say, from the Nixon precedent, that a president who contrived to have uh, the actions of such burglars not investigated or who used the instruments of the federal government to mislead the investigators, even if he, and I think this was true of Nixon, was not aware or had not directed or planned the original burglary, yes, I think that would be a predicate for impeachment. And, and here's one other very important element of the Nixon precedent, and it, it is different, let's say, from the Clinton uh, precedent. I, I almost said the Clinton affair, and you were going to laugh when I said that, so I didn't say that. Um, Nixon was brought down and ousted by a bipartisan process in which, at the end of the day, he had to go because members of his own party said so. Great people like Lowell Weicker, um, like Fred Thompson, like Howard Baker, at the end of the day, like Mr. Republican Barry Goldwater, who told President Nixon, you don't have... even a dozen votes in the Senate, and I'm not with you anymore, Mr. President, once the the tapes came out, the smoking gun tapes. Remember, it takes two... It only takes a simple majority of the House, but it takes two-thirds of the Senate, and in today's world, that's going to mean buy-in from both parties as a practical matter. Something like a consensus Um, is required for the Senate. And I do think it's abusive for the House to begin a process in hyper-partisan ways um, because you're not going to be able to get a conviction. Now, Clinton, um, uh, uh, Democrats never bought in to the impeachment in the House. 
And so very predictably, you didn't get anything close to two-thirds in, in the Senate. So I, I'm a foe of partisan impeachment. I would be a foe of partisan impeachment of this president, and I voted against this president, unless members of this president's own party were on board. They take an oath, as Sanders do, to do impartial justice. Um, and I actually, in the Clinton um, uh, 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 experience, um, re, re, uh, reinterpret that impartial, not imp- you know with a Y rather than I. Justice, you're supposed to try to imagine what you would do if the political shoe were on the other foot, which is a deep theme of Charles Black's book. Is it, it, it's not an ordinary. It's perfectly okay ordinarily to say, well, that's my party. I vote with. It's the Republican platform to do this. It's the Democratic platform to to do that. I don't love Obamacare, but that's what we promised. You know, I don't, you know, this is not the perfect tax cut, but that's what we promised. Okay. But that's not what impeachment is about. It shouldn't be partisan. And that's why that first question, the first question that uh, Benno Schmidt put to us is so crucial. If impeachment were just a political question, we wouldn't be disturbed by a breakdown in the Senate or in the House along partisan lines. We would expect that. But if you went to a jury or a panel of judges and found that their assessments broke down along strictly partisan lines, you'd be appalled. Or you should be. (laughs) Um, How about the disinformation campaign by the Russians to, uh, to help one candidate and hurt another candidate in a presidential election? If it can be showed that the candidate favored by the Russians colluded in that or encouraged it, uh, that activity by the Russians in some way, would that be an impeachable offense in your view, Philip? Probably. I mean, it, it, it would depend on who, what the foreign power was. It would depend on what the, uh, what the extent of the conspiracy uh, was, the candidate's knowledge, uh, but yes, perverting the course of an election by siding with a hostile power goes right to the heart of the grounds for impeachment that are outlined in the Federalist Papers. And I think, uh, and I hope, uh, I would be surprised if my colleagues disagreed, that the Federalist Papers are uh, perhaps our best resource, at least with respect to historical argument, for what the ratifiers really intended, who adopted the language that Benno Schmidt read at the outset. Well, I, I, would, uh, I would agree with that. Um, could a president be lawfully impeached for um, uh, directing his subordinates to um, mislead investigators or not to cooperate with investigators with respect to investigations uh, related to activities in a presidential campaign? I don't think there really should be much doubt about this. We, we sometimes hear uh, uh, commentators say, very sophisticated uh, commentators will say, that because the president has the discretion to direct the agencies to commence investigations, to drop investigations, to proceed along certain promising lines, to drop lines that may be less promising or that may threaten foreign relations or other complexities... Because he has that discretion, 
that he therefore can't possibly be impeached for doing something less than that, simply by saying, let's just shut down this part of the investigation. I, I don't see it that way. It, it seems to me that a president who took the heat for turning off an investigation is in a very different position with respect to the public than one who tries to use the officers of his administration to mislead investigators or to announce to the public things that, that aren't actually true as the alleged result of their investigations. Sometimes you'll hear people say that a president can't possibly obstruct himself. And, of course, that's probably true. But a president can't obstruct the operations of the government. Uh, it's like that old joke from my part of the country. Someone has asked... Uh, do you believe in infant baptism? And the man who's asked says, believe in it? Hell, I've seen it done. <laughs> you know, we saw this in at, at Watergate. Uh, and I don't think there's much question that a president could be impeached on that basis. Could a presidential use of the pardon power be the basis for impeachment? I think so. Well, I think it would just depend on what basis the pardon was given. Uh, some people say that the pardon power is unlimited and therefore it would be an implicit limitation on that text were we to impeach for any use of the power. But think about it for a minute. Is it possible that you could secure a pardon by a bribe and that bribery wouldn't be a predicate for impeachment? I think that's obviously nonsense. Because the text itself says treason bribery, or other high crime misdemeanor. That's easy, you know, just write down the the fairway. Of course bribery um, is impeachable, even if um, the bribe is uh, to to get a pardon. Suppose the reason for the pardon is not a bribery, but so that a party that's being pardoned is... uh, uh, has no incentive to cooperate with investigators. Yes. Um, What about that use of the pardon power? Well, if the person who's suborned in this way is is an official, that is a bribe. You know, we think of bribery just simply in terms of the president taking a bribe, but he's also forbidden from offering a bribe. Correct. Can a president pardon himself? I think that uh, is nonsense. I, I can't imagine uh, it being lawful for a president to pardon himself. It's not only that we have these long-standing cultural uh, convictions that go back beyond the founding of this country. The lawyers in the audience know this uh, Latin phrase, uh, nemo non judex causa sua, uh, no man may be a judge in his own case. There are many other reasons why you wouldn't per- permit a president to pardon himself. The language of granting a pardon, we don't typically grant things to ourselves. But if you just step back a, a minute and see how outrageous that would be. Professor Marr, I think if you wrote this, and maybe I just heard you say it, gave the example of a president whose pardon, perhaps because it was procured by a bribe, was a crime who pardons himself, thereby committing another crime, for which he must then pardon himself again, and so on, <laughs> in infinite uh, regress. Zeno's paradise. A kind of Zeno-esque. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and, and we can see this 
I'm going to tell you actually a law joke, not a lawyer joke. We'll see who laughs first. I don't tell lawyer jokes because, you know, um, um, ordinary people don't really, you know, um, uh, you know, think they're funny and neither do lawyers. So, you know, <laughs> so, um, uh, um, uh, so who presides? This is a law joke. Who presides at the vice president's impeachment trial, if you actually read this literally. Because it's tried by the Senate, and who's the presiding officer of the Senate? It's the vice president. And, of course, it cannot be the case that the vice president presides at his own impeachment trial because no man is a judge in his own case. And that was so obvious, it went without saying. And so they didn't say it. But here's what they did say. They said, when a president is tried... The chief justice presides. Why? Because who otherwise would have presided? It would have been the vice president who stood to gain. Now, that, was, that needed to be said because it wasn't entirely clear because you could have said, oh, I'm not presiding in my own case. I'm presiding at someone else's. But you'd have this insurmountable conflict of interest. But because it was slightly different than presiding in your own case, that maybe needed to be said. But no one thought it needed to be said that you couldn't preside in your own case. Of course you can't. That actually is what the essence of the rule of law is. Blackstone says it. It goes all the way back to to Cicero, to to Roman times. So if you can't be a judge in your own case, you can't basically be a partner in your own case either. It's it's a first principle of the rule of law. There is something to to this that, that the framers and ratifiers didn't specify some of these uh, bars because they thought better of us. Yes. <laughs> what about an accusation uh, of criminal behavior against uh, your political opponents or a candidate's uh, opposing uh, candidate? Do you think an accusation of criminal behavior that was unfounded or known to be uh, unfounded at the time it was made by the accusing party, would that be an impeachable offense? I suppose it's a matter of degree. If you uh, were, uh, were to try to intimidate your political opponents by threatening to uh, criminalize the behavior or throwing them in prison, claiming that they had committed a series of crimes... Uh, and you made these claims with a reckless disregard for the facts, uh, that seems to me the kinds of things that would really pervert the electoral process. And that is at the heart of a constitutional crime. Not an ordinary crime, although it might very well be a tort to uh, say that someone is guilty of a crime without any evidence or in the teeth of contrary evidence. Uh, Philip and Akil, just before we turn to the questions, how does the 25th Amendment uh, relate to impeachment? The 25th Amendment, as I think probably everybody here knows, was a consequence of the assassination of President Kennedy and the concern that if the president had uh, lingered for some months, as James Garfield did before his ultimate uh, demise, uh, that the government would have been this kind of shadow world. We know more now about uh, President Wilson's disability than people did at the time. President Johnson, that's Lyndon Johnson, had had a very serious heart attack back in the 50s. 
And it's not inconceivable that he could have had another heart attack. It killed him just a couple of years after he left office. Uh, he might have had a stroke that could incapacitate him. And so people of, of his generation became concerned about this after the Kennedy assassination, that we ought to find some way to legitimate the removal of a president who is unable to carry out his uh, duties by providing a specified legal process for doing so. Now, that was the intent behind the amendment. Of that, I, I'm not in much doubt. But the language is broader than that. The language is not limited to a physical disability. And so there have been some people in the last uh, few months who've suggested that this is an alternative route to impeachment. I'm a skeptic about this myself, but uh, the text is there. What do you think, Akil? So they surely were thinking about possible mental disabilities, mental derangements. Well, let's just say that one of the provisions of the 25th Amendment says that even a president who does not agree that he or she is disabled, uh, that if the vice president and a majority of the cabinet come forward and say... Or a group specified by Congress. or Or a group specified by Congress comes forward and a majority of them say the president is disabled, that then the House, the, the Congress can act on that disability. Right. But now there are two things to re- remember. So uh, maybe three. First, um, we're talking now about possible mental disabilities that carry no, no sort of imputation of wrongdoing. It's not right. because you're you're a criminal, you're, that you're like a traitor, that you're like a briber, that you've done something wrong. It's just you can't discharge the duty. So you see, it's it's not moralized the way actually trials and punishment <clears throat> in cases of impeachment are. So it's very different. It's not moralized. It pivots entirely on the actions of the vice president. The vice president doesn't go for isn't on board with this, nothing can happen under the 25th Amendment. The vice president has to put himself one day, herself, forward. And third, if the president disputes it, at the end of the day, the Congress decides, and there have to be two-thirds of each house. So in some ways, it's a lower, um, it's lower. It doesn't require misconduct, but, but it requires a higher vote, two-thirds not just of the Senate, but of the House as well, precisely in order to prevent this from being too easy an end around impeachment. Let's turn to some questions that have come from the audience. Must a trial in the Senate, an an impeachment trial, apply particular rules of evidence? Could a president be convicted on the basis of hearsay, for example? Well, I'd be happy to defer to uh, my colleagues here because I don't well, the slightest thing about criminal trials and evidence. But as a constitutional lawyer, uh, yes, I can easily imagine the rules of evidence not being of the same uh, stringency or rigor that we have in in an ordinary criminal trial. What we're trying to determine is a political crime, not politics, but still something that strikes at the heart of the state. And many of these acts are not things that lead a paper trail. They require inference from something that sometimes is hidden in plain sight. Sounds right. Uh, 
Well, and also the the penalty for a removal uh, based on a Senate conviction is not going to jail. It's just you're out of office. And yes, subject to disqualification for all future office right. holding. Right. And the only people who are impeachable are office holders and arguably, I would actually say, former office holders. So I'm not impeachable because I've never held an office. Now, Philip has, so I think he's impeachable. Um, and, and, and he could be disqualified from, you know, holding any office of honor, trust, or profit in, in the future. Um, and the reason that even though he's out of office, I would say he's impeachable is we wouldn't want someone one nanosecond ahead of the impeachment gavel coming down of conviction to be able to escape disqualification as well as, as removal. Um, and so uh, actually, I would say former officers are impeachable, but not mere private citizens. That looks a little bit like a bill of attainder to me, but that, I may be taking this too personally. Yes. <laughs> it, 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 it's not just about you. Uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, would you, too, comment on the um, relevance of the emoluments clause? Uh, as you know, this is one area where uh, people have made accusations against the current president that he's receiving emoluments in the form of business for his properties from foreign governments, from others. Uh, well, if you take this as a thought experiment that a president is receiving uh, substantial amounts of income from foreign governments, uh, just as, a, as an assumption. That in itself doesn't strike me as the kind of uh, really serious crime against the vitality of the state. It makes the recipient look unsavory. But it, it doesn't seem to me to discredit uh, or to disable the whole constitutional enterprise, which is what is contemplated by, by impeachment. But I'd like to know what the, Professor Moore thinks. The word emolument has such an 18th century ring to it, such an interesting word, that we focus on it and we sometimes miss the other words in the sentence, which are actually kind of important for us to remember. And no person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States shall, the key thing, without the consent of Congress, except of any present emolument office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. So here's something where the Congress can, if it wants, say, you know, Okay by us. And that's why it may be, it's very important as a practical matter to ask the question whether the president's party controls both houses of Congress. Just just saying. (laughs) Um, Who presides over the Senate in a trial of impeachment of a uh, federal judge? for example, or, or not the president. The, the vice the, president, the presiding the officer the of... The vice president. The vice president. And that's um, Aaron Burr when a justice of the Supreme Court, Samuel Chase, is being um, uh, tried. He, he um, uh, Basically, a majority of the Senate basically votes to convict him, but not by the requisite two-thirds. So he keeps his job. Here's a question that uh, about, about a historical episode. Um... Are we certain that if Nixon had not resigned, he would have been removed from office by the United States Senate? Certainly may not uh, come to us uh, in this life 
mm. uh, for events that never took place, but I'm about as certain of that as I am of <laughs> any other event that was forestalled by uh, a resignation. Yeah. Yes. Right. And Barry Goldwater t- wa- goes to the Oval Office and tells Nixon that he has less than a dozen, maybe he says less than 10 votes in the Senate. Uh, here's a question that... Um, um, do you think that obstruction of justice can fit the term high crime or misdemeanor and be an impeachable offense? Yes, I do. Yeah, I, so do I. I, I do. Sometimes um, we hear people say that the attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer. I bet you've heard that bandied about. Uh, that's not right. The Constitution doesn't provide for an attorney general. Congress could abolish the office of attorney general. Who would be the chief law enforcement officer then? They could abolish the Department of Justice. But they can't abolish the presidency. The president is the chief law enforcement officer in our, under our Constitution. Now imagine the chief law enforcement officer taking pains to obstruct the conduct of the laws of the United States. It's, uh, it's monstrous. It seems to me to go to just the kinds of things that the framers and ratifiers had in mind. Because it's, because it's unique to the office itself. You're using the powers of the office to disable and, and frustrate the operations of government. And in fact, um, the, best, um, uh, the, the best founded charge against Andrew Johnson wasn't that he violated the Tenure of Office Act, which, as Benno told you, was unconstitutional itself when it said a president can't fire the Secretary of War Edmund Stanton, without getting the Senate's approval. You don't need to get the Senate's approval to fire people. It's, it's a legislative veto in, in modern parlance. So, so although that's the one that everyone reads about in the history books, I have always thought that the, the soundest article of impeachment against Johnson was the last one, the omnibus one, that basically said, you are trying to frustrate systematically the enforcement of Reconstruction statutes right. in the South, and that's not faithful execution of the Office of President of the United States. And I always thought that was actually the best um, article uh, of impeachment, um, but they didn't have two-thirds for that either. Um, we know from historical notes, or at least if we, if we think they're accurate, that at the Constitutional Convention, um, Hamilton and Madison both responded to the charge that, that having a unitary executive, as pre- a president of only one person rather than a committee, uh, that that was uh, on the road to monarchy. And they both uh, replied that the four-year elections, you can throw the scoundrels out, uh, vote them out, and impeachment was a guardian against a president uh, assuming um, the status of a a monarch. Um, And we know in the ratification debates as well, that concerns about the executive becoming too powerful in several states were answered, again, by, by citing the impeachment clause, uh, as well as the frequency uh, of elections. So that in the, in, the, in the constitutional forming age, impeachment was a rather important part of the overall structure <coughs> that would keep uh, uh, the executive power 
uh, in check. Huge. Uh, it, 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 you know, we're, it's, we're coming to the end, but it's such a big point that we, we, it's hiding, as Philip said, some of the biggest things hide in plain sight. Just think about it. Because they're reacting to a world that, that, that and when they're, they're, they're um, schoolboys, it's a monarchy. And here are the two basic features about the monarchy. You don't pick the guy, okay, um, and you can't get rid of him uh, except by chopping his head off. And that's, you know, that's the English uh, uh, Civil War and rev- Revolution. And now, oh, you're going to be able to pick him up front, and he has to be subject to periodic re-election. And if he misbehaves, you have a democratic way of ousting him that doesn't require you to chop his head off or claim that he's abdicated when you push James. So Charles I, James II, England doesn't have a great way, Britain doesn't have a great way of basically dealing with someone constantly unfit. And you don't have the front end check of impeachment, of election, excuse me. So Hamilton emphasizes this with italics and repetition yeah, right. in the Federalist Papers. That's the key difference between America's presidency and Britain's monarchy. And yet, you know, impe- go ahead, Philip. Well, I just want to add to that. Uh, if we look around the world, we see presidents who, if they lose an election or if they abort an election, simply refuse to leave office. Uh, it's, I think it's a point of great pride for this country that in the middle of a civil war, we held an election right on time. In the middle of World War II. And Lincoln, in as late as August of 1864, thinks he's going to, well, he's lose. going to lose. He gets every cabin officer to sign a piece of paper. He won't show them what they're signing, but it's in effect notarizing it. And what they're signing is his plan that if we lose the election, as I think is likely, we're going to do our best to win the war until the end of our four-year term, and then we're going to hand over the keys to the next fellow, and it's, it, it's up to him then. So, so yes, come hell or high water. We're the only democracy that has elections during wartime. And of, and, of course, the... the Bef- yeah, before founding... I cut Philip off, he was about to tell you about what the Brits did no. in... in, in the... Well, and, of course, it was Madison during the War of 1812 who who held the election, who set the precedent that every four years there's an election, even if we're at war. In Britain, on October 31st, 1945, Halloween, Churchill gives a speech in which he says, no one under 21 has voted for any member of parliament, even at a by-election, because they suspended elections between 1935 and 1945, basically. Because that's what they do, and we hold elections on time. Yeah, I and suppose. It, and yet, if, if impeachment was such an important part of the sort of structural debate during the convention and during the ratification process, are you surprised that we've had only three instances of, of presidential impeachment in our history? Not really. I think that I mean, it we've has had a functioned. lot of bad presidents. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has functioned as, uh, as we promised the ratifiers. It really succeeds when it uh, gets uh, parties, uh, senators and congressmen, and presidents to obey the rule of law. It doesn't succeed just when it's invoked and carried to conviction. It succeeds when it deters, when it right. gives confidence to our institutions, I know we're about to close, but I want to just make this one point. We began by talking about how impeachment is a matter of law. It's not a matter of politics and how 
when party divisions uh, result in impeachment votes, we are suspicious of them because they don't look like an ordinary legal proceeding. Someday, our grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, some of our successors will have more perspective than we do on what our greatest contribution, uh, the legacy of this country will be. I'm convinced that it will be our adherence to putting the state under law. There's really nothing more precious than that. And it was uh, rare and among modern states unprecedented when we did that. This isn't just a fixation of law professors and, and, uh, and lawyers. Following the rule of law in the greatest matters, as well as in the smallest, is something that we want to insist on in this country. It's not just something we owe ourselves and we owe each other as a matter of self-respect. It's something we owe the people uh, who come after us because the generations who bequeathed us this system, with some very rare exceptions, have suffered so much to keep that tradition our tradition, to keep it alive and make sure it flourished. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, our time is up. I want to thank Philip and Akil to to great authorities and dear friends. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.